Merry Christmas, Mutt, for a very special December episode. I'm Rob Basercio. I'm Devin Shepard. And I'm David B. Jacobs. And we are Cadaver Dogs. And I gotta tell you, I am so fucking excited for this week's episode. I don't know, one of these movies is one of my all-time favorites, and it's like fucking crazy. But before we get going, how are you guys doing? Good. I am also excited, but nervous. I like want to do these films justice. Um so we'll see. I did so much research. <laughs> I did as much research as I could squeeze, but it was hard to focus the research because there's so many different things to research. Well, I got to tell you guys, I'm extremely curious to hear about all the background of these movies because like they're kind of part of like our social zeitgeist, especially now. Like both these films are like ingrained in horror culture and have actually changed, I think, the trajectory of American culture since they've been released. Definitely. Both both of them, I think, have impacted not only like horror, but also like film. Yeah, but both were extremely successful when they came out. So oh yeah. One of them is part of the most successful horror franchise of all time. Yeah, and the other yeah. one had people waiting four hours in line just to see it. And for good reason, I think. <laughs> like, honestly, uh, if that was the only way I could watch this movie, I might wait four hours in line, like, today. I'd do it. But but before we get into that, we do have a few announcements, right, about some, like, uh, film festival stuff before we get into it? Yeah. My short film, Pillow Talk, won Best Film at the Misfit Pond Horror Film Festival last month. Woo! I think the last time we talked about this... Uh, I mean, our last episode was in early November, but we recorded it much sooner. So we were talking about how I was going to Atlanta Horror Film Festival. We wound up getting nominated for Best Paranormal Short. And then it was after that that we got accepted into Misfit Pond, and that's where we won. Uh, so, yeah, really cool. I'm excited. Congrats. I hope you guys got to see it soon. If you didn't see it when it was in Misfit, because Misfit was virtual, so some of you may have seen it. I was also there for part of the shooting. I got yes, to see it were. in action. <laughs> no, and, uh, wait, sorry. 52. No, he wasn't there. He wasn't there. That's not true. <laughs> well, I, I, was, wasn't I wasn't working. gripping. He was just it's on okay. Set. I, I was just there. I'm allowed to walk through. But by the way, there might be some like dog uh, background noises because we have a little friend with us. What's our friend's name, David? Ali Oliver. Uh, I'm at my sister's house right now with her little baby as well, although they are out for a moment, but they'll probably come back some point in the middle of our recording. And I have Ollie here, who you just heard bark and run to the door because he saw a squirrel. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I do want to know, uh, have you guys seen any good horror films recently? Um, the three of us got together. We watched uh, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which I, I'd never seen before. And I really enjoyed and it. And An American Werewolf in London. Yeah. yeah Devin, what did you think of that one? Those were both super fun. I know like those were the last films that I watched because I was trying to do the 31 Days of Horror. I only mm. got up to 30 movies, 30 feature films. Oh, I saw like man. I saw like 30 short horror films <laughs> on top of that because <laughs> I went to two film festivals. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I, I think you definitely did your homework and some. I, I was a little behind, but I have been watching uh, Cabinet of Curiosities with Guillermo del Toro. And I got to tell you, some of those are some of the best like short they're movies they're an hour and a few minutes so it's basically a movie <laughs> um some of those are some of the best horror movies i've ever seen others are not that good but there's one of them in particular that is fucking amazing and you guys gotta yeah. i think all both of you will really really enjoy the episode i'm talking about i'm excited i know you've been talking about it for a while so i'm gonna start it eventually the my favorite film that i saw 
for um, October because it's November when we're recording this, which is why we're talking about it, um, was Lake Mungo. It's been on my list forever. Um, have you guys seen it? Is that the found footage one? It's it's found. I would say it's more mockumentary, which I guess can yeah. be found footage. We've I talked about like this it. in the past. Oh, wow. It, it, it's kind of like experimental, right? It's got that experimental like oh. half documentary style, like um, Encounters of the Fourth Kind or some shit. Or the taking of Deborah Logan, even like that sort mm. of has that. Yeah, we've discussed doing Deborah Logan on the pod at some point potentially. Mm. Well, I, I am going to mention it tonight because there's obviously a lot of crossover with the two movies we're going to talk about. Um, that being said, I, I think for the sake of brevity, we should fucking get into this shit. And Hell yeah. uh, starting us off this week is Devin Shepard to give us the rundown on probably one of my favorite movies ever. It's a dark night in Washington, D.C. A slow fog rolls over the city, culminating around a single Georgetown townhouse. A taxi pulls up. A tall, dark figure gets out, briefcase in hand, and stares up at the house that looms before him. Every moment of his life has led to this moment. He is the exorcist. In the house resides the famous Hollywood actress Chris McNeil, her daughter Reagan, and their staff. They were never a truly happy family. Reagan's father was now out of the picture, not even caring to call his daughter on her birthday, and Chris was always on set or working. But things took a turn for the worse when months earlier, Reagan began showing signs of mental distress. Chris took her daughter to countless doctors and psychiatrists, but no one could prove what was wrong with Reagan or how to help her. After Reagan is suspected of murdering Chris's director friend, Chris becomes desperate and turns to a psychiatrist priest named Damien Karras. Chris asks Karras, to take the necessary steps for an exorcism. Karis, having just lost his mother from what felt like neglect, was struggling with his faith and his time spent as a priest. But when he met Reagan, all that was to be tested. She sounded like a demon or several and knew things about him no one else could. Karis asked the church to grant the exorcism. They agreed and sent the exorcist, Father Marin. Marin and Karis perform the excruciating exorcism that ends with Marin dying in the room. Karis steps up and casts the demon out of Reagan before throwing himself out the window and down the long concrete steps to his death. The priests freed Reagan, but lost their lives in the process. This is The Exorcist, written by William Blatty based on his novel of the same name and directed by William Friedkin. We're going to put the Christ back in Christmas this week. Oh, God. David. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is why we chose this for this month. (laughs) That is true. That is true. It was actually released around Thanksgiving, between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And one of the controversies was the the church really didn't like that. They thought it was inappropriate for the season. So we're doing the same thing. Oh, I love that. (laughs) Yeah, well, I could see why the church would be upset. You know, I mean, like even today watching this movie, it is like absolutely shocking. When she's stabbing herself mm-hmm. with the cross. I rewatched I watched it this week and then I rewatched it again this morning and it's still like I'm like, holy fuck. Like they actually show that in the movie. I mean, it's also the way the movie is shot and edited and written, because you you kind of go back and forth between these uh somewhat mundane, almost slice of lifey scenes, and then you go to that, and it happens very quickly as it, it's it's always very jarring and sort of jars you into this different sense of pacing. I think the other interesting thing there is that like a lot of people have pushed back against the first few scenes of this film, which take place in Iraq, as being oh, yeah. kind of like unnecessary. 
They are extremely unnecessary no, and do totally nothing necessary. for the movie whatsoever. You think so? They they no. kind of. What do you, I think that's <laughs> they do a lot. I think uh, that's part of the story. Like Max Sindow, how do you have Von Sindow? Yeah, Max von Sindow. Yeah. It does it does set up his character, and that's pretty much the only thing it does. It doesn't need to be ten minutes long. If it was a minute long, then fine. But ten freaking minutes of this whatever this is is like who who shot this? Zack Snyder? Come on. I I do agree. It's <laughs> long, but. It, it does set up um, a huge theme throughout the film, um, one does? that I hope that we'll explore later. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> which is the theme of fate. And I think it sets up a lot of what of imagery that we end up seeing throughout the rest of the film. Okay. So I want to ask a question. This movie came out in 1973. There is the satanic panic, which is usually talked about with the 1980s. But was anything like that also going down concurrent with the exorcist Mm. yeah and in terms of history this was like a large part of my research just because i am in love with this time period especially everything around the satanic panic i'm really interested in learning about i think a lot of history that led up to what caused the satanic panic influenced this film and we all know that of course this film ended up also influencing the satanic panic from the 70s throughout the 80s but it did start a lot earlier. I mean, obviously this film wouldn't have been made and had such an impact if there wasn't an influence. Do you have like a hard like time frame sort of like when the satanic panic took place? Like when did it sort of start? I'll do like a quick brief history lesson, which is like our new favorite thing to do on this podcast. My new favorite thing to do. I love history. Let's go, Devin. Woo! Learning. Wow. History was my worst class. Um, Yeah, so in the 50s and 60s, I think one thing that we started seeing a lot of was this, quote, alternative religion coming up, which is to say cults. Cults were becoming a thing. A lot of people were finding their own religions, kind of breaking away from popular religions of Catholicism. And then, of course, in the 1960s, we saw counterculture and hippie culture and a lot of rebellion against kind of like quote, the man. And what's more of the man than the Pope and the Catholic Church? Also around this time, um, child sex abuse became more prevalent. Um, Not prevalent, people became more aware of it. It was always something that was kind of brushed aside. But throughout the 60s, it became more talked about and people started accepting that like children were being abused. So that is to say, like, all of that led to kind of these people realizing that shit was happening that wasn't necessarily great. And everyone was kind of like, the world sucks and humans suck and God is great. And so we started seeing Christians pushing against anyone who rebelled against the church and saw them as Satanists. And the first instance that I saw that started the Satanic Panic officially was in 1971, I believe, where a bunch of cows died from, I think, a disease. And then because they were out in the wild, got eaten by wild animals. And people were like, oh, these Satanists are using cows and murdering cows to like praise Satan. Jokes on them. It was obviously aliens. I I think it's kind of safe to say, and I think one of the major themes about this film is that at the time period, it seems like a lot of people were turning away from religion. And one of the things that makes this movie scary, because at the time it was considered like the scariest movie ever. But but it really seems like it's playing on this fear of people that they're turning away from something they should be more invested in. The lack of God in society. Like, it's not necessarily people doing evil things. It's just people doing godless things. 
Hmm. Yes. I, I mean, like, it's hard to say because this film, like, it is based in the Christian faith, obviously. But I think ultimately, like, there is that ultimate evil that is presented in the film that like, yeah, people were pushing against God, but I think like this film also talks about just like evil in general and relates it to stuff that is currently going on in the world. Yeah. But I also think what it's saying by using like Reagan and Chris, Hey, we got a Reagan reference in. Oh God. Both of them are kind of presented as innocent, right? Like they don't do anything wrong, but they are very modern and modernity itself is in question in this film. Mm, can you can you talk a little bit about how you see them as as modern? Yeah, she's she's a single mother. They are not religious. She is the breadwinner in society. They've split up. It's it's an atypical situation. She is playing a character who's protesting in the beginning of the film, which is very important, right? So she is part of like a systematic social change. What this film is saying is that maybe we're moving on a little too fast here. You know, maybe we should dial it back and get to the real American Christian values, right? I think that's what they're trying to like put into her head. And by making Reagan like so cute and innocent, like she does nothing wrong. She's still susceptible for this just because she doesn't have God in her life. They're missing the faith. I I agree that they set up this like modern family to be a, a target of of the devil, but I'm not necessarily agreeing with the fact that the film is saying like we need to go back to our traditional values. But I do agree that they are saying that like someone who lives like this is probably more susceptible to the devil, to evil, to this alternative lifestyle that is presented. Well, don't you think that's interesting because um, like Regan and Chris aren't necessarily doing anything crazy. Like they're not doing what you typically consider like sinning. Well, she uses a Ouija board. Ouija, Ouija, Ouija. I don't know. Spirit um, I think it's Ouija. <laughs> Ouija board. Um, and they use the Lord's name in vain a lot. Although the priest does too a couple of times. But Chris especially is really, really taking the Lord's name in vain a lot. She has kind of a vagabond lifestyle. To be clear, I don't think any of this is wrong, but I'm fr- like framing it from the perspective of what a religious person might say is wrong. So, like, you know, she's always bringing all these friends over. She she's a single mother and doesn't really seem interested in changing that. She brings her daughter to all these strange places so that she can film movies. Yeah, they're not doing anything deliberate, but they've strayed off the path of a pious religious yes. life, right? Yeah, they are not religious. She is not christened. Yeah. To build on that specifically, and I think Devin in particular, you're going to find this interesting. If you notice watching this movie, the amount of help that Regan gets in the correct way is directly proportionate to the amount of cups of coffee that Chris gives to men. I so you brought this up in the chat, and I think it's yeah, it's interesting that you said. Um, it's kind of, what did you say? It's regressive to show how often, um, Chris serves coffee to men because she is a more like independent put together working woman. Right. Yeah. But I think this movie is being critical of like independent women. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do agree. It is, but it's so funny because the one scene that I think about when she, um, offers coffee to people is the moment when the police officer comes into the house and essentially says, or like tries to get the Chris to like say that her daughter could have possibly killed Burke, which is something I do want to talk about that she 
she pauses and there's like this long, awkward pause where they don't talk. And she like literally has no idea what to say. And out of like this duty, essentially like this like female duty to like be courteous and like to be polite, she asks him if he wants more coffee, even though she clearly doesn't want to ask because the second that he says yes, her face just like drops. It's hilarious. It's so subtle, but she like frowns. She's like, oh fuck, now I have to get this fucking dude coffee. Yeah, that that whole um, interaction between the two is really well done, I think, because you can feel all the sense of tension and like, uh, not withholding, what would you call it? Restraint on her part because she's about to break down any moment because all the terrible things happening to her daughter. And uh, it's also great that the uh, police officer asked her for a autograph, which is like totally yeah. inappropriate in that moment. And she just obliges to him. But yeah, I completely agree. It seems like as she slips further into the traditional uh, wo- motherly, womanly role, as in like giving things to men, it seems like better things happen. So there's an irony here because all of this is actually very much not how possession tip, uh, traditionally works. We're talking about, because I agree with everything you're saying, Rob, that the, the possession is very much targeting this independent woman, that it's it's they are not religious, and that's why they're being targeted. But traditionally speaking, uh, demons would want to possess people who are more religious to challenge their faith, that they don't get anything from possessing someone who already doesn't follow God. Like, you're already doing the devil's work. Why why would they want to? <laughs> why would they care? They're like, oh, great, you're you're good in our eyes. They would go after someone who is religious. That makes a lot of sense to me. But to me, this possession isn't targeting Reagan. It isn't targeting this family. To me, this possession is targeting Karis and Marin, specifically Marin. I mean, the name of the film is called The Exorcist, you know? So in in a way, like Marin pretty much is the main character of the movie, even though he's barely in it right? He's in the beginning and at the end. And one of the reasons I saw this was there is this underlying theme of fate. um, And one can say divine, not divine intervention, but divine planning throughout the film where, you know, when Karis is dreaming and has that nightmare, he sees all these images that Marin sees in the beginning when he's in Iraq. And this is before Karis has even met Marin. And so there's this kind of like, and we see Chris, you know, she notices Karis far before she ever meets him. She asks about him. There seems to be this like divine connection between all these characters that ultimately leads to Marin um, performing this exorcism on Reagan. I, I felt like he came too close to like Satan or something. I think that's what, what was happening in Iraq. Like there was an evil there and he kind of runs away from it almost like cowardly. And this is his way of dealing with it. But because he didn't have the strength, um, he probably feels somewhat responsible. Oh, something I wanted to talk about, because um, we've talked about possessions a little bit on this podcast before, particularly from a mental health angle. So I wanted to bring that up here because it's obviously explored in The Exorcist. Um, mm-hmm. Reagan goes to, to doctors and psychiatrists. She doesn't have agency here. Her mother, you know, she's a child. Um, her mother controls her life. And we can see clearly throughout that it's a life that she's not happy about. Her mother's working all the time, which is again, a point towards Rob's theory of like knocking down the the modern woman. Chris is not happy about it or that Regan's not happy about it? That Regan's unhappy about it. Mm. 
I don't I don't get the sense that Reagan's an unhappy child though at all. Do you guys? I don't get that sense either. Oh, really? Yeah, especially in the beginning. Like the first scene they meet her, she's talking about how much fun she had in a picnic and she got to ride a horse. Yeah, I think I but I think she's still sad about some things in her life. I mean, her parents obviously are struggling through this divorce separation, whatever mm-hmm. it is. Her father doesn't call her on her birthday. There's that scene, which is like one of my favorite moments. It's it's no dialogue, but she Reagan sees her mom on the phone, hears her mom on the phone talking to the operator trying to get a hold of her dad. And mm. before her mother even has to tell her, Reagan goes back in her room and takes off her shoes, knowing that they're never going to get anywhere that day, when the plan was to go um, out with her mother that day. And to me, that says this has happened before, and it's a common practice that she doesn't get to spend time with her mother. Mm. Yeah, yeah, we we definitely um kind of get a sense of a little bit of neglect, but I, I mean, yeah. I guess you're right. Yeah, that is subtle. That's a good that's a good pickup. From that, we can kind of jump into the other thing that it's talking about with modernity is this movie is highly critical of the sciences because it seems like they exhaust every single option, and I think that's part of my favorite part of this is the interaction between them and doctors. So you know all those stories about people. Uh passing out and vomiting and whatever, which is, I think, a little bit exaggerated regardless. But those stories actually were not about any of the things that you think they were. They were about the science scenes. It was the medical scenes that people were really freaked out over. Yeah, they were gory. And that hadn't been shown in film before. They got the one where they're putting the iodine on her neck and they stick the needle in. That's fucking hard to watch. Yeah, one can see it as no doubt that it is, you know, um, a demon inside of her. Um, they have to explore these options in order for it to be true. But I think it also like lends a very faint shadow of doubt over everything too. There's like just enough doubt in this movie to start making you questioning what's real um, in terms of the demon, like if the demon is yeah. real or not. Oh, really? Well, sort of. Um, I mean. Towards the end is when we really start seeing the supernatural stuff. They kind of hold off. Like when she's levitating in the bed, you're like, wow, there's no fucking doubt now. And that's also when uh, Karis's character realizes there's no doubt about this. Like he he's always withholding. That's another thing I really like about this because with the crisis of faith, which this movie is like kind of attempting to remedy, even the priest himself has a crisis of faith right in the beginning. And, and through this, he mm-hmm. regains his mm-hmm. faith. Kind of like they did in Signs, yeah. but like way better because Signs wasn't that good. Science is great. But my understanding is that the book was actually more ambiguous, that it it was less clear. I haven't read the book either, so that could be wrong. But I understand the book left it more open to interpretation as to whether there was actually something demonic going on or not. The movie is not in any way ambiguous to me. I don't I, I don't I don't see that. Uh, I, I think very early on, you're seeing this bed is clearly shaking. Like, no, this girl cannot shake the freaking bed like that. That's insane. That's obviously something supernatural. And then even just like the, the makeup that they do on her is like, that is that is not a, a, a mental illness causing her to rot, essentially. <laughs> like, no, that's clearly supernatural. It's obviously demonic. Yeah, I, I think fair enough. Um, the makeup and the bile that she's spitting up, those don't necessarily look like realistic, but they look gross and effective. Yeah. I mean, I, I I do believe that like it is pretty certain that she is possessed by something. But I think there is like there are some questionable things throughout the film that is just like it it allows you to question it. And I think that's really what makes the film powerful is that like 
you're you're supposed to question it and it asks you to question it, you know. One thing that I'm thinking of off the top of my head is um when Karis first goes to Reagan and he talks to her and then goes to Chris afterwards and is like, you know, it's really hard to to ask the church for an exorcism. It needs to hit certain things, one of them being um her speaking in a different language that she doesn't know. And after that is the first time that we see her or hear her speaking language she doesn't know, which is after he says that. Um, so it's like questionable if did Reagan overhear? Did someone tell her? Is she influenced by that conversation at all? Why does it only appear after Karis brings it up? And I mean, like Marin obviously is suffering from a heart condition. We see him take pills throughout the movie. Was it Reagan that did something? Was Did his heart just give out at the wrong moment? Burke is thrown out the window and we're never really given an answer on to how he dies. But we are given to different opportunities on who could have killed him. I hear what you're saying, Devin, but I also think that a lot of that is the characters um, being unsure because I think I kind of agree with David. Uh, we're, we're pretty early on aware that there's some sort of demonic presence. Um, even when she's at the doctor's office, the very beginning, we're seeing flashes of a demon face. So I, I don't really think there's much question. I, I love how every time we go back to Reagan, it's something shocking. And it, they build mm-hmm. so successfully. When, when it's the last straw and she has to go to the priest, that's the most shocking scene in the movie, when she's stabbing herself with the cross. It's a little girl being sexual. And I mean, like, this was the whole thing about the counterculture in the, in the 60s. You know, a lot of it, of course, is based in free love. And the church doesn't practice free love. They practice sex when you're married and only to procreate. This sexual thing was so repressed at the time. So to mm-hmm. watch... Not even just somebody, but a young girl do that, especially with the the cross. That is mm. epically shocking. Totally sacrilegious and also extremely violent. I mean, that that's oh. shocking feels an adult, but it just adds on to it. So to tie this into your question earlier about mental illness, Devin, there are a lot of ways that people have read this film, but one of them is that Regan has hit puberty and that it's kind of an overreaction to a daughter going through puberty, becoming sexual, and how horrible it is that uh, uh, this girl would have a a very natural and ordinary life change. (laughs) That's an extremely liberal twist to uh, viewing this movie. Um, I disagree, but I think it's interesting because she's obviously at that age, she's about to go through puberty. I mean, obviously, this reading is strictly metaphorical, Um, Mm -hmm. but it's, you know, she's becoming sexualized, she's cursing and swearing at people, she has opinions about adults now. Mm -hmm. Mm, Yeah. I love that. I love the, what you say, like, the discovering sexuality. I think that's a key part. Yes, I can see this as, like, her going through puberty the first time, but the discovering sexuality is an interesting angle, and there's a theory, and I'm curious what you guys think. There's a theory that um, Burke, and and trigger warning here, um, that Burke sexually assaulted Reagan. It's possibly presented in the film. I think there's support to it. Before I say my piece, I'm curious if you guys had that reading. I could see how you get that. There was almost, like, a point I was watching it when I'm like, the mother's, like, upset that she left her alone with Burke for a moment and like you know we're we're presented with burke as like an untrustworthy guy um the first time we meet him he's badgering a guy into almost fighting him when he's very drunk and then he gets sent home and then you know even when he dies they're like oh he's probably drunk 
But uh, there's no real evidence to support that, I don't think. But I think it's hinted at. I came across that reading as well while researching the film. I definitely did not have that reading myself. I do think it's interesting. And I think that a solid argument can be made. The main thing I see against it, which I guess this could be like pre-assault or whatever, but uh, the first time we hear about Burke is uh, Reagan being like, oh, are you, are you going to, is he going to be my new dad? Like she, she's encouraging her mother to go for it. And that feels very much against this theory, um, I guess, unless it is before the assault. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I think that would that would be my my thing there is that that would be before the assault possibly mm-hmm. just to support the argument because I had it the last time that I had that reading the last time I watched this film. Yes, Burke is left alone with her. And when when she's possessed, um, Pazuzu says, do you know what she did? Your hunting daughter, assuming that like she did something mm. bad, which would be um, victim blaming, which would be very much a thing at that time, um, that it is the woman's fault to be sexually assaulted. And then the question of like, why, why kill Burke in the first place? Like, why would that even mm. happen? In terms of Burke being an abusive asshole, you can also just equate that to, uh, you know, William Friedkin, the director of this movie, was also an abusive asshole. So that's just <laughs> what they thought directors were like. They're like, oh, you're a director. You've got to be an abusive asshole. And that's what directors are like. <laughs> yeah, I like that Friedkin and Blatty made him an asshole. And I'm like, yeah, that's just you. <laughs> like, you'd get it. <laughs> it definitely recontextualizes when, you know, we're talking about, we, we're having a whole conversation now of whether or not we should even have guns on set. And then the exorcist, William Friedkin, would hide guns in places and fire them to scare the actors. Yeah, to get a reaction out of them. Like, it's fucking crazy. And and all this that we're saying here, highly recommend that people go research it themselves. Um, there's also a documentary on Shudder called Leap of Faith where Freakin addresses some of these things. Um, mm. It's, yeah, I definitely research a little bit about it, question yourself and like talk about why these are an issue and how, I don't know, just how they can keep happening because they do keep happening. And fuck auteur theory. Okay, moving on to our second film, DBJ. Give us the rundown. Based on a true story. Carolyn and Roger Perrin have purchased a beautiful new farmhouse in Rhode Island. But this is a horror movie, so you know that shit's not all it's cracked up to be. Pretty soon, the couple and their five daughters begin to experience strange goings-on. Pictures fall off the wall. There are many cold spots and rancid smells. Nancy and Christine feel a mysterious presence in their bedroom. While playing a game of hide-and-clap with her daughter, Carolyn gets led in a totally wrong direction by something that has been clapping. April, the youngest daughter, is talking to an imaginary friend, so no red flags there. And then finally they see it. In the bedroom of the oldest daughter, Andrea, atop the wardrobe that was there from before they moved in, Bathsheba. Enter Ed and Lorraine Warren, our heroes for this story. Ed and Lorraine are professional paranormal investigators and answer the parents' call to check out this haunted house. Lorraine immediately senses an evil within the walls. The next step, they need to gather evidence to prove the presence to the Catholic Church and get an exorcism approved. See, exorcisms aren't just for people, they're also for places. Unfortunately, that will matter very little, as before the church can get involved directly, the haunting moves on to its third and final stage, possession. 
Mother Carolyn Perrin becomes possessed by the ghost of Bathsheba. Oh, and just to set this up real fast, uh, Bathsheba was a witch who murdered her own child and then hung herself. She's remained in this house for a hundred years and has been the source of a string of related crimes. Possessed the mother to kill the child, as Lorraine describes. Yeah, that's not good. Uh, though Ed is not an ordained minister nor qualified to perform an exorcism himself, the time is now. With Lorraine's support, he begins to exorcise Carolyn as her husband reminds her of the love she feels for her daughters. Together, they are able to fight off the wicked spirit and cleanse the parent family of their conjuring eh, once and for all. And Annabelle's in it too. This is The Conjuring, directed by James Wan, from a script by Chad Hayes and Carrie W. Hayes, starring Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson. And my sister just came home, so if you guys hear sound in the background, then sorry about that. Yeah, this was also, like like The Exorcist, a huge smash hit, and has become the most successful uh, horror franchise of all time, uh, monetarily. Yes, that is, of course, including all the spinoffs of Annabelle and The Nun and The Curse of La Llorona, not to be confused with the far superior La Llorona. It is interesting, the the whole history behind it all in the house and everything. Could you give us just a little bit of background on it, David? Because I know you know a lot more than I do. So first off, all that stuff with Bathsheba being a witch who killed her son and blah, 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 com- complete bullshit. None of that is real. She didn't even live in the house. She lived next door to the house. She was accused of witchcraft and accused of murdering a child, not her child. And there was not sufficient evidence. So the case was thrown out. She was not convicted and she did not kill herself. She lived till old age and just died of natural causes. So... All of that is just wrong. The, the parents actually somewhat disagree about Bathsheba even being the main spirit. Andrea Perrin is the one who's been the most outspoken. She wrote a book on it, House of Darkness, House of Light. And she claims that the main spirit was actually someone named Mrs. Arnold, who was very uh, envious of Carolyn or something like that. It also, the time frame was a lot longer than as portrayed in the movie. They lived in that house for 10 freaking years. And according to them, the haunting stuff never stopped. Uh, the Lorraines came for a little bit in, I think, 1974. At some point, they performed not an exorcism. There was no exorcism. They performed a seance. And during the seance, Carolyn allegedly became possessed by some spirit. At which point her husband, Roger, got so furious that he actually socked Ed Warren, punched him, and then kicked them out of the house and just refused to ever let them back in. Oh, um, my new hero. He was concerned about his wife's mental health. <laughs> oh, wow. I love this guy. Roger Perrin never really believed that anything supernatural was going on. It was mostly Carolyn and the daughter's. Didn't they say like a lot of the the paranormal stuff was like benevolent for a while also? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was reading something. Uh, There was a ghost that used to tuck the kids in and kiss them goodnight. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I read too. (laughs) Anyway, after this, the Warrens went on to do a bunch of like supernatural demonology stuff. And they had like a sex slave at one point. And uh, now they're heralded as heroes. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> yeah. weird. We, we talk about that a lot, I think, in our um, Conjuring the Devil Made Me Do It review, and then possibly yes. a little bit in our Amityville episode. So if you want to hear yes. more about the Warrens in general, go 
uh, listen to those things. The long story short is that they suck in their frauds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> well, I, off of that, I am very curious. They do rely heavily on this being uh, based on a true story. That's like a huge selling mm. point of the film. And obviously, from what you just gave us, there's a lot of um, leniency in terms of what yes. how they adapted the film. So I'm curious for you guys what the benefit or the detriment of this being, quote, based on a true story is for the movie and how you think that because it's promoted as based on a true story, how that influences the messaging of the film. Yes. Lorraine Warren was also a consultant in the movie, and she has a contract with Warner Brothers detailing all the things that they're not allowed to talk about. Yeah, everything true. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They're not allowed to be shown uh, having any affairs with minors or extramarital affairs. Uh, Yeah. Which happens. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of that. Because obviously, like, we are glorifying these two characters that were actually, like, kicked out of the house. So it is a flip of the script because if you were to ask the people in the house, they'd be like, yeah, the Warrens, they suck. But (laughs) the movie is saying, oh, the Warrens, they're awesome. We should have demonologists, more or less, if you really want to take it that direction. Yeah. um, And basically, when whenever you say something is based on a true story, you are adding an air of accuracy to it. You are claiming they are claiming some degree of accuracy. They are saying this is not just something we came up with. This really happened. You, you, you are you are claiming history, at least to some extent. And we talked about this a lot. And based on a true story, we kind of disagreed over it a little bit as to how much that is a claim that needs to be backed up. But you are at least claiming some degree of accuracy, and it raises all those ethical questions about whether or not you are then subject to the truth and. Is this making sense? <laughs> no, yeah. No, I think that's that's so great when you say claiming the truth because so much of the message of this movie is it is a, a highly Christian me- message. Um, mm-hmm. it, it does pretty much state that like God exists and the devil exists. It literally says that. Yes. So when you say that like the movie is claiming fact and claiming history, that like that's that's what it's trying to do. It's trying to prove the existence of God in that sense. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And I believe it has been used by ministers to to convert people and to like... Oh, yeah. Doing research on this, like trying to find like some backstory of like why this was like so popular. It was like so many Christian websites uh, because a lot of like highly religious people love this movie. And I can see why. But yeah, people are like showing it in class and like showing it at church, which I, I mean, I like... You know what? If a horror movie is being so- shown at church and not seeing as blasphemous, like all for it. Hopefully there's more horror fans, but like it's so funny. <laughs> that is interesting. It's also, I mean, there's not a lot of gore or like shocking imagery, unlike The Exorcist, for instance, which um, I mean, we'll talk about it later. I, I think there are very similar messagings between the two films. This is kind of a small pivot, but I did want to ask you guys, one of the kind of weird things about this movie is like it, it kind of blends different types of horror genres. I would argue it's more of like a haunted house film than an exorcist film. Although there's obviously a possession at the end and an exorcism. Uh, What do you guys think about that? Do you think it's successful in the blending of the two genres? Do you like the kinds of things it did? What do you think that means for horror? Because this is kind of on the tail end of like the paranormal activity craze. So it's like, it's, it's kind of building upon that um, haunted house thing that was going on for a while. And it added a bigger budget to it. 
we've been talking a bit about the 1970s and how this is a big thing in the 1970s with all the demon stuff. And then it's kind of like, why is this successful in 2013? And it's like, well, in 2013, the big genre was haunted house stuff. Like, it is kind of an exorcism by way of the haunted house genre. I mean, I think it merges the two pretty well. It, it lays out the rules of the haunting. Uh, the first stage is infestation. The second stage is oppression. And the third stage is possession. And that also plays kind of as the three acts of the film. The first stage is pure haunting house film. That's the infestation. Then for the oppression, the Warrens come in, but the haunting dials up. And uh, it, it's starting. It's more about the investigating stuff. And then the third act is when we get into possession. And that is the actual exorcism itself. So, yeah, I agree that they they merge well in this film. And I think like I, I agree with the other point, too, of like the paranormal activity part of it, the like haunting house part does seem to be more of like it could be a marketing thing because that's what was doing well at the time. Um, but also, if we look at the true story, that's what the story was. They didn't have yeah. an exorcism. It, it was a haunted <laughs> house. And I think that where the exorcism part comes in play um, and, and play well when we look at the the point of the movie um, the two screenwriters, you know, are, are very religious and do talk about how like the point of this film was to talk about the confirming the faith. So I think in order to do that, you have to have an exorcism in order to like prove the devil exists, to prove God exists, et cetera, et cetera. So question for you guys, this movie is really interesting and has a lot of different reads because the main characters are women and it does so heavily like strong female characters it does have. So I'm curious what if you have any thoughts on like the significance of the women in this film, um, especially the mother-daughter relationships. I mean, all of the children in this movie are are daughters. <laughs> like it can be seen as a feminist film or like for women, but it can also not. I read it as sexist. No, I also read it as sexist, which was that's really interesting because I think they do try to be feminist. I mean, mm. The, the pivotal relationship for me um, that that can read in between those things is Lorraine and and Ed. Yes. And at this point, I mean, um, when the Conjuring movies were finally made, you know, they were talked about being made for like, I don't know, like 20 years or something. Um, Ed passed away in 2006. So Lorraine, like you said, was yeah. a consultant on the film. So she is the one person that they can talk to about yeah. the experience. Lorraine stands up to herself. For, uh, stands up for herself quite a lot throughout the film, which I think can be seen mm. as feminist. She's like, "No, Ed, like you don't get a chance to only do this. This this is us doing it. I get an opportunity here." Ed constantly tries to like protect her and be like, "No, no, yeah. no, you're going to hurt yourself. This is going to be a lot for you. Let me take this on. Let me like do it." And she's like, "Fuck you, Ed. Like we're here to do this together, and I can handle this." Like please let me fucking do it. So that I can be seen as feminist, but I do have yeah. reasons why it's sexist, but I want to hear your thoughts there. Yeah, I mean, I agree with all of those things. If we're looking strictly at the modern day stuff, then I think it's a little bit sexist, but maybe not as bad as like, I, I think the exorcist is really sexist, sorry. Um, <laughs> not disagreeing. But I think the big thing that throws The Conjuring off a cliff here is the stuff with Bathsheba and the Salem Witch Trials. Ah. Uh. The, the movie outright says that, like, oh, there were real witches during all these Salem Witch Trials. It literally says, like, oh, no, this person was a real witch, and she's terrible, and she's going to kill all your kids, and a lot of women are really susceptible to this. That they, they, If they kill kids, then they'll, they'll, they'll get points in hell, uh, which is, like, it's just complete and 
utter nonsense and it is completely revising this history. No, that's really interesting. Can you, um, what part um, reaffirmed that there are witches for you? Do they say that outright that Bathsheba is yes. a witch? Yes, outright. They, they, they say she is a witch, that she murdered her child in order to gain points in hell. And now she is possessing mothers to kill children. And that's that's the purpose. Is That's her motivation. Is that she, she wants Satan to, to like her more. So she keeps sacrificing children to the devil. It's interesting that <laughs> the film is like, yeah, witches are real. Because, you know, we know from history that that is, like you said, it was a whole sexist thing that are just like women who are going against the church or doing something independently are considered witches. So it's really interesting to see a movie in 2013 with a a mom who is like you said susceptible to this why <laughs> it's 2013 why why are we saying that this is a fucking thing right now why are we saying oh women hey watch out like the devil or witch can get you at any time it's such a sexist trope it's it's very rare for a movie to do witches in a way that is not sexist uh, the main one, I, in my opinion, that goes against it being The Witch. Um, and also, surprisingly, Fear Street. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Fear Street was good. Yeah. I think something that this film also does is talk about male fragility a little bit as well. Mm. I especially love the moment where Ed is working on Roger's truck. And <laughs> Roger comes home and is like, what's up, dude? And it's like this moment of like maybe he feels a little... <laughs> insecure about his masculinity or his abilities as a father because he can't like fix something around the house and ed comes in the stranger and is like macho man is like oh man no i got it like doesn't even ask him he's just like i'm gonna fix the truck now i mean they make it a big point that roger is not a big point but it is a point that roger is the the only man in the house that uh he has five daughters that there there is no other man of the house the real Andrea has talked about that as well. They set it up to like, they don't necessarily have a lot of money. Uh, he says, it's hard to feed you girls. Like they're, yep. they're in a place of not like, you know, great wealth. The, the mother does hint that there was something happening in their past before they moved there. Um, she's like really excited to get a new start. She like thanks him hmm. to, to get a new start, which is really interesting. So I think there's a lot in this film that sets up this idea that like, that Roger has this fear of failing his family and failing at being a dad and isn't doing to the best of his abilities what he can to support. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I agree. Yeah, it's kind of similar to Amityville in that way. Definitely. Yeah. Not to the same extent, because Amityville was also largely discussing in domestic abuse that the 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 father was one becoming possessed and kind of equated a bit to domestic abuse. And I, I don't see that in this movie. Well, this one flips it and makes it the mother. So I mean, argue. in the real Warrens, there was domestic abuse, not the real parents, but the real Warrens, yeah. there was domestic abuse. Uh, but let, we don't need to get into that. You, you guys do your own research. We'll, we'll, we'll give you a really nice, juicy Hollywood reporter link in the description. <laughs> <laughs> um, an interesting point kind of off this uh, women's stuff, though, is also that when the Warrens are giving a lecture, they talk about how the demon will, demon or spirit or whatever it is, will latch onto whoever is most vulnerable. And I mm -hmm. found it interesting that then they almost go against their own rules then with this. It'll possess the mother to to kill the, the child that you would, you would think the child would be the one possessed, but it goes on mm -hmm. to the mother instead. 
why would the mother not be most susceptible? She's obviously struggling. Like I said, she said at the beginning yeah. that she needed a new start. Yeah. Well, I find it interesting because I didn't, I didn't see that in her character coming into this. Oh. At least not in in the way that the movie sets up the character. Uh, I haven't read Andrea's book, so I don't want to make any assumptions about the real people. I know that in the real story, Carolyn kind of bought the house without consulting anyone, just on a whim. Huh. Um, oh, I think, I think I think yeah, that's a little reference then. Wow. There were there were some uh, arguments, I believe, over the fact that she did that. And like, why would you do this? We don't have money. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a terrible thing to do. <laughs> I, 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 that's interesting because I did see it in her character. And I think because of that line specifically. Sorry that I keep referring to it. But Which actually uh, that she like thanks uh, Roger for for doing it. Like it's like she's struggling with something. Mm. And I mean, she does struggle, but it's struggling with possession and and she you know her thinking back on that happy memory i mean could be something she holds on to before they even got into the house i don't i don't really know but it it does seem that she is struggling a little bit one thing that this conversation made me think of actually right now in christianity the woman is evil we talked about this on the podcast before that like we are the committers of the original sin uh, supposedly and the way that sex plays in this movie, it's it's very subtle, but I think there is a play of sex a little bit here. The parent parents, they enter the new house and we see it like the, this happy moment. They're like, oh, should we christen the house? Also christen, should we christen the house? Christen, christen Christ? Um, and they have sex. And then the next morning she wakes up with bruises and we can see that as like kind of the start of the possession. Yeah, I mean, it ties all into the witch stuff. and. Again, in the real story, the the wards kind of just made up the Bathsheba stuff, and I mean, not made it up, but you know, they that wasn't actually the parents disagree about Bathsheba being the actual main presence in the house, which I think is funny, <laughs> since the movie just takes that and runs with it, and completely ignores all the other stuff that was supposed to be bigger, and just instead all the other ghosts are just like Bathsheba's victims in the movie. Yeah, which um, is interesting. Yeah. And obviously, like yeah. Rob said, it the movie suffers a little bit from lack of stakes, and we'll talk about that in reviews. But I think that does help um, mm. raise the, the the stakes a little bit of like, no, she's she's um, there's a history of this, and she could become the next victim. And it's not just the fact that they're women, also though, because it it almost goes back in what we were saying with the Exorcist, where the actual tradition is that the possessions would happen to believers, to people who have strong faith, and the demons and spirits want to attack that. But in this movie, as well as in The Exorcist, the parents are shown as not being very religious. They they don't go to church. And I think that it is, again, making that point that you, you should accept Jesus into your life so that this doesn't happen to you. Mm. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm so confused by what you're saying, where it's like believers get possessed, because that's, that's never the way I've heard it. I mean, in, in real life cases, I've heard of believers, obviously the ones who have the psychosis and stuff. But I, I think traditionally, it's like people who turn away from the faith who are possessed. Like Not traditionally. I think it's a more recent thing. No, Mary Magdalene is possessed and Jesus has to save her through faith. 
and she didn't have faith beforehand. Yeah, no, it, there are definitely stories like that. But I guess my question off of that is like, how do you become possessed by a demon if you don't have faith in the first place? Like you would have to mm. believe that this other world exists. And I mean, I have different theories about what it could actually be, but like, because we are looking at this through a religious perspective, like, yeah, you would have to believe that there's something Why? that can possess you in the first place. Why? If, it, if it's a real thing? That, like, I, is that a rule? I mean, if it's a real, if demons were real, why couldn't they just possess you if you didn't believe in them? Well, they can, but they the the point is that they wouldn't really want to because they're they're trying to get you to accept Satan and to go against God. And if you're a non-believer, then you're already going against God. So you're already doing the devil's work. So why would they want to possess you? It it doesn't really make sense. Yeah, it does. It sounds like a very narrow idea of what demons uh, agenda might be i think a lot of different demons have different agendas like for instance like hereditary that demon i mean those people are doing a black mass but like the kid i'm going off of my research set yeah yeah. (laughs) i'm going off of my research set i forget where it was in my research but somewhere it was they literally said like this isn't what really happens and i think it's an interesting point that you're making rob though is that demons have a different um agenda and i've said what i think it is in the exorcist and David's said what he thinks it is here. Um, specifically that the movie wants to make <laughs> the message that you should be, uh, more religious, but I'm curious what you think then. Uh, do you agree with David that the film, that the purpose of this demon is for that? You mean within the context of the film, not the demon's actual personal motivation? Yeah. The, the demon, but Bathsheba specifically in the conjuring, like Rob, do you agree with David's point that it's there to remind you to, lead a, a religious life i guess sort of i don't know the film's agenda i mean <laughs> I, I don't know the film's agenda i think the exorcist also like as a point of comparison between the two like both of them seem like their agenda is to try and turn the audience back towards catholic christian faith so yeah. i mean yeah i would say that's the point of the movie and like using the demons does that yeah i would say each demon has a different agenda like in the exorcist i think the demon's point of view is to attack innocence and uh, the movie does that to point out possible problems with like modern society, modern as in the 70s. And uh, this one is, you know, it, it's a witch who kills children. I agree. I think both films are kind of expressing this uh, family values type stuff and showing these families that, I mean, the parents are presented a little bit more traditional, but they still feel like there are issues going on there. And it is kind of like a fear to return to family values. And the exorcist doubles down on that with its single mother and all that. And all the scientists are like, well, maybe it's a problem with the uh, the fact that her father isn't present. Maybe that's the real issue. And then she gets a father, but a different kind of father, a capital F father <laughs> to come in and exercise her. <laughs> Yeah, that, that is kind of a cool play on words that like they're missing a father figure so they need a father <laughs> to come in and save them. That, that's cool. I will agree that The Conjuring feels more like a Christian propaganda film and I get that messaging from it, but I'm in less agreement that The Exorcist is. And I think for me, I mean, it could just be because of I'm not a religious person, so I just like take something out of it that other people may not. I'm not sure, but I am like a spiritual person. But to me... The movie, yes, it's about God and the devil, but it's so much about man and like what it means to be human and to like have faith in just like living in general. 
to me, it's so much about like the good and evil and like the ultimate good and the ultimate evil. And yes, in the movie, that's personified with God and the devil. But there, I just see like this ultimate battle there that to me is so much more interesting than if it were the God and the devil. It, it, it's more interesting if there is an ultimate good and a bad. Does that make sense? I know they're inter- interchangeable, but like that's the reason why I believe there should be that level of doubt that's in there. It's like you can make your own choice to be good or evil. And maybe that's why this movie is so scary because Reagan doesn't have that choice. You know, she's possessed and has to choose to be bad. I mean, both films through this idea of God and the devil kind of suggest that there is such a thing as absolute good and evil. And I only just now realized that both good and evil are one letter off from God and the devil. Oh, I only that's ju- funny. That's, I don't, I wonder if that's any etymology there anyway. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Rob, what what were you gonna say? Uh, God spelled backwards, dog. So dogs are good. Yes, thank you. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't know if I totally agree with you. I, I I really do think um, what The Exorcist does a really good job of telling everyone is that you're not safe even though when you think you are, and even if you think you're living a good life, you're not. That there's a very specific thing you should be doing. That is uh, accepting Jesus Christ into your life as your Lord and Savior. Like that, that to me seems the point of the yep. movie. Uh, that's why mm. in the ending, the iconic of uh, the power of Christ compels you, the power of Christ compels you. Yep. Like that's yep. what compels you to do something. So I, I don't really see it as this kind of like good versus evil. Although I think that is obviously a point in biblical beliefs. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. it gets good versus evil through God and the devil that it, 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 or vice versa. It's God and the devil through good versus evil. Like it's it, it, it equates them as kind of the same thing. Um, another subtler point in about how they don't aren't religious in the beginning is that they talk about how her birthday is on a Sunday this year. Isn't that so great that we don't have anything mm. going on on Sunday? <laughs> That's a good point. The God compels you is an interesting argument to make because in that moment, the demon Pazuzu doesn't leave. What ultimately does make Pazuzu leave is Father Karras saying, come into me. You know, like it's him, mm. not God, who ends up taking the devil out or taking the, the demon out of Reagan. Yeah, but I would argue at that point, he like truly found his faith. Like his character has so much struggle with like his faith throughout the film. And it's really during the exorcism that he finds his faith and the, and the strength to overcome the demon. But maybe it's faith in himself because what would make that moment more powerful uh, if he found his faith back in God, if if he was talking more about God in that moment. But I think it's more about him finding his strength in the life that he chose to lead. Like, yes, he's struggling with his faith, but I think like the overall issue that um, Karis is coming to is like, did I waste my life becoming a priest because I could be doing so much more and so many different things? And that could be about his faith, but it also could just be about like, did I waste my life? And when he gets to this moment in Reagan, he finds like, oh no, everything that I learned up to this moment is helping this child. And therefore my life is given, it's given meaning. It's given a purpose. Mm. But don't you think that purpose is kind of faith? It should also be noted that the church and generally just a Christian reading of the film tends to not very much like the ending uh, because 
it is a suicide. So like mm-hmm. I, when I read the church basically said that uh, there are two ways to read the ending. Either the devil makes a kills a priest or the priest commits suicide. And neither of those are very good for Christians. Yeah, this was actually an interesting point that Freakin talked about in the Leap of Faith documentary. To Blatty, mm. he very much wanted, didn't want Karis to be possessed. And Friedkin was yeah. like, okay, but he commits suicide and that's, yeah, that's something that like a priest, it's, it's, an, it's a sin. Why would a priest do that? So I think that's, that's a very interesting point, David, is like, I think Friedkin even makes the, the, the statement in the film that like, he wants it to be a little more ambiguous and it was more, yeah. the ending was more of a fight with Blatty and a, a, a mm. compromise with Blatty more so to give something <laughs> a little, a little sense. I've always read it as a suicide, and I think that's the more interesting read. But I definitely see where it's ambiguous, and I, I just never considered the other version, but I think it's definitely there. No, I, I mean, I agree that it's a suicide, but it, I, don't, I don't think it's a suicide in the traditional like sinful self. It's more like sacrificing yourself for others, and I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure typically that's okay in Catholicism. Yeah, it's a gray area here. Well, I mean... It's the only way you can beat the demon. So, whereas in the Conjuring, Bathsheba makes you kill yourself. That is explicitly Bathsheba doing that. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Mm. So, I, I think David and I are more in agreement than Devin and us, but that uh, the agenda of both films seems to be to kind of like spread uh, Catholicism. It's you know, it, it's used as a way of like trying to turn people towards the faith. So, you could maybe say that they're like yeah. a Christian propaganda. Which I would agree. I think both are. I don't think that necessarily is a knock against the films. There's a difference between saying that backs Christianity and saying that's Christian propaganda. Those are different things. So for me, when you think of propaganda, I I went into this definitely getting ready to say that they're both propaganda, but I'm not sure. When I think of propaganda, I think that it is something that is being specifically backed by that power. Like if if you want to talk about like American propaganda, military propaganda, then you have like, well, the military funded these movies and censored anything that goes against the military. Therefore, those are movies that are military propaganda. So in the case of these films, is it something where the church is overseeing stuff and censoring anything that goes against them? I think in the case mm. of The Conjuring, you can definitely argue yes, because they explicitly had Lorraine Warren as a consultant, Ed and Lorraine are recognized by the church, I believe, right? Uh, yeah, they worked for the church. The church used to send them out. Yes. Whereas in the case of the exorcist, they did have priests as consultants. They also had scientists and medical people as consultants. They had a lot of consultants on the exorcist. And there are several priests in the movie. The priest who does the last rites at the end is actually a real priest. But the church had a nuanced reaction to the movie i'm going to say i think that the the pop culture version of it is that the church hated it and said it was the worst thing ever but from my research what i found was more so that the church didn't like the movie they said that it's not suitable for white audiences they're like you you probably shouldn't watch this but we understand that you're kind of making an argument for faith and that's not the worst thing ever like it was, it was, it was, it was a bit more nuanced than it's given credit for. But I don't know if you can go so far as to call it propaganda if they're not doing everything the church wanted. 
Mm. That, it's a semantical argument, but I think another thing that is typically uh, at least connotatively used with propaganda is it, it's a twisting of the truth. And since The Exorcist is a yeah. really fictitious tale, yeah, I could see that as like a mark against it being propaganda. For the point of The Conjuring, it it is based on truth and it's completely fabricated everything and they still claim it's true. The reason that I think this distinction is important is because I think I think propaganda is inherently a bad thing. I think it is a negative term. And when you call something propaganda, that is a bad thing. I don't think you can have good propaganda. Well, yeah, it's usually used as, but like the the straight definition, I'll just read it right now off uh, Google, is information, especially of a biased or misleading nature used to promote or publicize a particular political cause or point of view. It doesn't necessarily need to be backed by a certain body. Yeah, but the bias or the what was that bias or? It's especially of a bias or misleading nature. Yeah, and I think like beyond the um, the based on the true story aspect here, I think you hit it, David, when they said, oh, witches are real. Like that, that's misleading. Like, yeah. yeah. We know the truth there. That's ultimately what proves The Conjuring to be a propaganda film. I agree. But what, what I'm really interested about this is like, and, and we're kind of getting into that. Do you think this is morally acceptable? Do you like it? Does it bother you guys that these films are trying to push um, Catholicism on the viewers? For The Conjuring, yeah. I think it just makes the film less interesting. It's more interesting when there's a bigger debate of of faith, which is what we see in The Exorcist. You know, when there's like, when you give the possibility that God may not exist or that this demon may not exist, it makes it more interesting. But The Conjuring starts off with God just exists. It's just, it, and I think it, it, it just, it makes the film boring. <laughs> I, I would argue both movies are faith films, whether or not they're propaganda. I think they are both faith yes. films. I mean, that's, that's just not an interesting question to me, especially because it's talking specifically about Catholic faith. And I'm just, I'm not Catholic or Christian at all. <laughs> and I just I, I just don't find it an interesting question. It's like, oh, have you ever considered uh, accepting Jesus into your life? And I'm just like, no, not really. So I find that uninteresting. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily morally wrong to have those questions. Like, there are a lot of things that Christians have done in history that are not great. Like the witch trials, for instance. <laughs> But I don't. I don't think that it is automatically bad to be Christian. Like, no, it's not. It's it's fine. You can you can have religious views. It doesn't as long as you're not hurting anyone. I don't care if that makes sense. No, yeah, it does. And I I agree. And I, I I do want to take back my. I think it's morally morally wrong. But I agree with you that like I think the question needs to be there. I think yes is. Mostly, and also for like an audience members like you who who aren't Christian and like never were, never like will be, like yeah, it it must be really weird to be like, uh huh, okay, God exists, yeah, and the Christian God exists, uh huh, yes, okay. It's such a Westerner thing. I mean, the past several episodes we've done, uh, we covered uh, the Wolf Man, where we were talking about uh, the Romani people and how they're shown to have all these harmful religious views and whatever. And then last month we talked about voodoo and hoodoo and how that's portrayed as like this ooh spooky religion because oh brown people follow this so it must be scary and evil and now we're talking about Christianity it's like oh praise Jesus yeah it's definitely not like uh, Saint Maud which uh, definitely casts a totally different view on in Catholicism so I also want to answer my own question 
Uh, I, I don't necessarily think um, we should knock films for their messaging usually. And I think it's not necessarily morally wrong to promote uh, a point of view through art. Um, and whether if you disagree with it, I think it's all the better. Uh, the Exorcist, I really like it. It is completely pro, pro Catholicism. And I think that makes it more interesting, actually, because it goes for its point of view and it doesn't hold back. Now, one, one of the uh, points against uh, The Conjuring is that since it's based on a true story and it's not completely fictitious, they can't bend all the events towards their messaging. So there's some like conflicting uh, scenes in the movie, whereas it's not as focused as like The Exorcist, which can make everything go in one direction. I, I think I, I actually pretty much agree with that. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that it's necessarily a knock against the movie if you disagree with it. But I mean, I also think that if you disagree with the movie, then it's legitimate for that to affect how much you like it. Yeah. yeah. I do think propaganda is bad, though. I think that's censoring facts. But it's also a film. So it's not like pamphlets. Yeah. Look, I'm, I'm mostly in agreement. And I think the point that you brought up about like your your art can have a point. But to, to me, what I just personally find more interesting is that like art is an interaction between the artist and the audience and mostly the audience. And it's about what the audience takes away from it. And I think the audience always needs to be questioning what's there. So if they're just told something, it just, I think, takes away from the experience of the art in the first place. That makes sense. And I, I think both of these movies do that. <laughs> I, I think that's a fair point. I don't know if I agree with it, but I think it's a fair point. I mean, I actually don't know if I agree with that. There are some great movies that have very ambiguous messages, and there are some great movies that have very clear and explicit messages. And I think both of those things are valid. Like, Sorry to Bother You is an excellent movie. That It is very clear and straightforward in what it's saying. That one's like largely about capitalism and how terrible capitalism is in general. But I think also part of that movie is like an urgency to it that like we need to fucking talk about this right now. This is a major, major problem. You can't get that with ambiguous. But that's the thing. It's talking about it. We need to talk about it. We need to have a discussion on it. And I think like that's what the important thing is to me is that like these need to be discussions. It's it's not like fact and and receive the fact. That's what makes it propaganda to me as if it's fact Mm. and received as fact. Okay. So uh, now it's time for my favorite part of the show, which is the bone review section where we rate each movie on a one through four bone rating system with half bones in between. Starting us off this week with the exorcist is Devin Shepard. Four bones, four bones. This This isn't just like one of my favorite horror movies. It's one of my favorite movies. It, it, it is just such a powerful film to me. I think the tension throughout is so well built. The themes and everything that I said throughout this episode, I love that like every time I watch it, I have a different interpretation. Um, I love that everyone has a different interpretation of this film. That to me is so powerful. And yeah, freaking was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just doing whatever I want to do. But I think like there is something beautiful in that, that it makes this this powerful questioning film. I think the performances are fantastic. I, I like we said, like they're the whole reason, not the whole reason. They're one of the reasons why this movie is so scary because you just watch these people be terrified the entire time. It looks beautiful. The sound design is fucking awesome. The script is tight. I cannot believe this was a novelist who adapted their own fucking script into a movie that was tight. Like, I don't think I've ever seen that before. Yeah, I just there there's so much going on here and this will forever be one of my favorite films. And yes, I'm glad that we acknowledge that Friedkin has very 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 controversial way of directing and uh abuses his team 
um, which should be talked about, but I don't think the art shouldn't necessarily suffer them from that because movies are made by many, many, many different people. So yeah, four, four bones for me. I I I know David is going to say something different. So David, do you mind if I ask Rob what his opinion is just to oh. see, or do you want to go next? Yeah, sure, go <laughs> no, 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 we, we got to have David go in between because we got to end on a high note with Exorcist. No, you don't. Go, go yeah, for Rob. Yeah, no, we have to. I, I'm very. I have to go after okay, you, David. Let, let's hear. Let's hear your review. DBJ, what do you think? I'm not going to tear it as much as you guys think I am. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm going to focus on negatives because you guys are going to do all the positive stuff. Like it is well made. I think that there's a lot of really good filmmaking in there. I think the performances are good. the The script has good scenes within it. Uh, all the scenes work really nicely. I think a lot of the naturalistic slice of life stuff is very well done. Um, and I, I appreciate a lot of things in this movie. I think there are a lot of positive things to talk about. Uh, I also just don't really like it. I think it's very boring. It it doesn't say anything interesting. I don't like that's not like we just said. I don't necessarily have an ethical issue with making a faith film. I think it's fine for people to have faith and you can make a faith film, but it doesn't mean I have to like it. Like I I'm, I'm fucking Jewish and like an atheist. Like this is so boring. And you have this all powerful demon. You're just going to like throw water at it and talk at it. And then it will go away. Like that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. That's so stupid. The, the climax of the movie is literally them saying like Christ, Christ. And then it's like, Oh no, stop saying Christ at me. Like that, what that, that's really stupid and dumb. And I don't think it works from a character point of view either. Like I just, some the characters have interesting things, but then all of their arts just get thrown away. Like Chris is the more interesting protagonist to me. Like both her and the father are equal protagonists, but Chris I think is the more interesting one. And she basically disappears for the last half hour of the movie and her arc is just like to stop being independent. Like you have to learn to not be like this. Stop being an independent woman. And I'm like, that, that's so boring. But it's well made, so I'll give it two bones. Rob, <laughs> I, I, I gotta tell you, Devin, I totally agree with you. If I could give this four and a half, I would four bones. This is probably and very likely the best movie we've talked about on this podcast. It might be my favorite. I don't know. I really like the thing and Annie Christ. So yeah, there's that. But I, every time I watch this movie, I'm blown away. I, every single scene is so tight. It's so well constructed. They're short. It's jarring. Um, the craziness reminds me of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre at times because like, I feel insane. Um, I feel such a connection to all the characters. Watching Regan suffer and her mother deal with it is just riveting and heart-wrenching. It's an amazing looking movie the way they deal with the issues is actually interesting because in a lot of films, um, I'm going to say this about the conjuring in a minute, when you finally have the climax and you deal with the big bad, it's too easy for the characters to take care of it. The exorcist has real stakes at the end. Regan is messed up. Both the fathers are dead. Her mother dealt with all these awful things. Her boyfriend was killed. And, uh, I think that's cool. It feels like mature and realistic. This is one of my favorite movies of all time beyond horror, and it really deserved the Best Picture Oscar nod. Anyway, Four Bones, one of the highest rated. So um, since I made you guys go first, I think I'll just, can I go right into The Conjuring? Is that okay? Can I do my review? 
Go for it, man. So The Conjuring is on my short list of least liked movies. I think it's hot trash. It is what I call it, pop trash. It is garbage. It is regurgitory. It mixes a bunch of genres and just spits out all the other things. There's no stakes at all. I think a, a dog dies, right? That's the only victim in the whole thing. Everyone's fine at the end. It rewrites history. When there's an exorcist, they just go through it real fast, like incredibly easy, hardly an inconvenience like that YouTube guy says. The hide and clap thing's kind of cool. I'll give it that. And I do like the guy from Office Space. He's cool. But, you know, superhero, demon hunters, it's not even fun. And they don't even go like deep into the Catholicism. I, I just hate this movie. Uh, One Bone, it's trash, and I'm pissed off that it's the most successful horror franchise of all time. I want to give it lower, but, you know, it's competent. It's just fucking boring. Like, I've seen it three times. Every time I watch it, I forgot everything that happened because it's so boring. God, this movie sucks. I'm going to give it to uh, David because I know, like, you're going to go right at me. What do you think? I'm not going to come right at you. Like, no, that's fine. We're allowed to disagree. I mean, I agree with a lot of what you said. As we've talked about, this movie is full of propaganda and... Uh, everything I said about The Exorcist, all those problems are also a thing here. The final act especially falls pretty flat because the exorcism aspect is just it's, it's lackluster. Exorcisms are a dumb plot mechanic. Yeah. That said, I like this movie. Yeah, it's flawed, but it's exceptionally well-directed and the scares are fun. It's pretty restrained for most of the film and I think that works. Excellent cinematography, production design, editing, sound... It's just really great exercise and craft. James Wan fucking rocks. Also, I completely disagree about the no snakes thing. That makes no sense to me. Yes, there are no character deaths aside from that poor dog, but obviously the dog dying is a negative, not a positive. But like, you don't need death as the only way to create snakes. There is the threat of death. There is the threat of this family breaking apart of, of the curse, latching onto the fantasy warrens and breaking apart their family. Like, it, it's trying to make the mom kill the daughters. How the fuck is that no stakes? It's like higher stakes than the fucking exorcist. And on a thematic level, it's this fear that the work they're doing to help others is going to bite them in the butt and come back to haunt them, literally. It, it's, it's high stakes. I don't understand this argument. Anyway, the movie is super flawed, and the sequel's better. Conjuring 2 is it, it's great. It has a better family, better characterization of Warrens. It's less problematic because there's no witch trope in it. But this is still a well-crafted horror film that's a lot of fun, despite being extremely problematic, and I've definitely got to deduct points for that shit, because it's pretty hard to put aside while watching. But, two and a half bones, I like it. I'm, I'm more in the camp of, of Rob. I find this movie a little boring. I liked it a lot more the first time I watched it. The second time, I was bored. I, I do remember the first time I watched it. I think I've only seen it two times. The first time I watched it, and this time... I get angry at the jump scares. There's like one really good one. And I think we all would say that it's the the hand clap one. I do really love the device of the hand clap. I think that's that's really cool. But to me, they're jump scares for the sake of being jump scares. And it always pissed me off. This movie especially was like the start of the jump scare. Well, not the start, but like was feeding off of the jump scare craze. And I think that like an efficient jump scare has tension. And this film just didn't have tension it just like it jumped at you for the sake of shock and uh that makes me upset i'm coming around on jump scares now but i think this this film is is a reason why i had issues with them for a long time the characters are fine but i think they could be more developed the daughters especially like are just kind of just like all clumped together and don't really like have any say in anything the witch problem is an issue um i do like the performances 
Lily Taylor is like one of my favorite actresses in horror. Um, but I, I do like the the performances of the Warrens for what they have. Um, even though, yes, I agree it's propaganda. I think like I would count it. I I, I knock a lot of stars for the fact that it is propaganda. I think I just it's hard to it's hard to watch um, and to like want to to support the film knowing that this is a, a propaganda movie. It's pretty. I'll give it that. The um, production design is awesome. That house is fucking dope uh, and creepy. But I just, yeah, I, at no point do I find it scary. So I'm going to say, yeah, two bones. Two bones for me. Thanks for listening this week, guys. Happy holidays. Enjoy your December. See you guys later. Peace. Your mother sucks cocks in hell. <laughs>